When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned against aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Um, uh, Kyle is actually in Israel today, which is why you get me this morning, um, which is really cool that he actually gets to go and be in the places that we're talking about in First Samuel. So um, yeah, just be praying for him that they would be uh, just a really cool opportunity and that he can come back and, and share that with us as we come into First Samuel, because he's going to have a, you know, a really unique perspective by having just been in Israel. So be praying for, for him. Um, before he left this past week, he and I were kind of talking over, over um, the text this morning, and he, he asked me, he's like, don't you think this is like one of the most pivotal texts in the Old Testament? I was like, dude, you can't do that to me. Come on, I don't need that kind of pressure right now. You can't just like say that and then it's like, hey, I'm going on a plane to Israel, bye. Um, 
but actually, this passage, uh, it does mark a major turning point in the history uh, of Israel, and so in the history of redemption as well. So we want to um, handle this passage really carefully this morning, because it, it's really important in, the, in understanding the whole storyline of the Bible. And so, because it is important, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's get some context about what's been going on, because that's going to help us understand um, what this passage is, is all about. So, let's just go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel. I won't go back to Genesis 1, but I could. 1 <clears throat> Samuel, uh, we see that from a barren but humble woman named Hannah, God raised up a prophet and judge named Samuel. Samuel, who hears directly from God, stands in stark contrast to the sons of Eli, the high priest. Uh, these, these, these sons of Eli, they should be training to lead the people in rightly ordered worship to God, Yahweh, um, but instead they care only about their own glory, their own um, significance and greatness. They actually sleep with women at the tabernacle, pe- women who are supposed to come to serve at the tabernacle. Um, they take from people's sacrifices the portions that belong to God, um, and all in all, their only concern is for their own gain, and they will pervert the, the cultic or religious practices to get it. Israel, on the whole, has likewise failed to give God glory. Um, instead, thinking that they can use God to fight their, their wars against the, 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 the Philistines. So in some ways, Eli's sons are just a reflection of Israel as a whole. Um, so the elders, they actually summon the Ark of the Covenant like some kind of magic amulet to work against the Philistines. But God will not be turned into an object. The Ark is captured, and His glory departs but only to demonstrate his glory all the more. Without anyone's aid, he topples the Philistine God and brings his judgment upon the Philistines. And so they send the ark away. They're like, go back, go back to Israel. Israel receives it and and finally repents and directs their heart to Yahweh so that when the Philistines come to attack again, they trust God. They cry out to him and he saves them. God actually triumphs over the enemy in this like miraculous thunderstorm that totally routes the invading army. And then there was peace and justice in the land. So that's, that's um, chapter seven, that was last week. And then comes Samuel's sons. Just like Eli's sons. So we're, we're seeing uh, history repeat itself, it seems like. What Eli's sons did in the cultic or religious arena they're just doing in the uh, judicial arena. Uh, Samuel appoints them as judges, and that means that they were supposed to um, generally guide the people in worshiping God, as well as administer justice. Um, and they're supposed to do justice, particularly to the poor, widows, orphans, and so- sojourners. Um, this, uh, this work of justice actually gets at the heart of, of who God is. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18 reminds us this about God. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So this is, this is actually getting at the heart of God. Doing justice um, is is what God does, and it's what he calls his people to do. He sets justice within the terms of the covenant with Israel. So we see this in Deuteronomy 16. <clears throat> he says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, 
that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Right? He's calling people to justice. But look at, 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 what, at what is happening here. The perversion of justice poses a serious threat to the people of Israel. Right, That last line that um, uh, you know, you're doing justice that you may live and inherit the land. So uh, potentially not doing justice could compromise their status as inheritors of God's good promise, the, the, the land here. So what should they do? So that's the context. Then we get to the request of the elders. The elders convene and approach Samuel. And so far, this is exactly the right move. Right, Samuel has proven himself to be a righteous judge and a faithful mediator uh, between the people and God. So in bringing their uh, problem to Samuel, um, they're gonna be bringing their problem to God. Way to go, elders. You finally have figured it out. Right? Maybe? Um, look at verse 5. Um, verse 5, the elders say, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay. Gotta have, gonna, gonna, gonna need to, to parse this out a little bit. There's a lot going on. So they're coming with a complaint, Right? Um, and the fact that the first part of their complaint is that Samuel is old is kind of hilarious to me uh, because I don't, see, I don't understand how Samuel doesn't respond like, uh, the problem is I'm old. We literally call you guys elders. Like, you guys are old. What, what do you mean? Um, so, you know, it can't be that his age is that big of an issue. And, um, you know, the text does tell us he's old, but he can't be that old. We know if we continue reading the story, he's alive for at least like 20 more years, if not more. So it's not just that he's old. The issue is that um, it, he's old and he has these corrupt sons who are gonna come after him. So they're basically saying, um, Samuel, you're gonna kick the bucket soon enough, which again, I don't know how Samuel's just like, thanks guys. Um, um, and we don't want your corrupt sons ruling us. Fair complaint, right? Like we've seen, that's a legitimate concern that they could have. Um, but I imagine um, the dialogue with Samuel kind of, playing out like something like this. Um, so you know, Samuel says to the elders, um, okay, so what do, you, what do you guys propose? And the elders say, well, well we were thinking, <coughs> and this is gonna sound crazy because we've never in our entire history had one, and we should know we're the elders, we're called to preserve the tradition. Um, what if we had a king? Samuel says, you mean you want a political structure in which one person rules and his son, good or bad, takes charge after him? That's the one, uh, which is exactly what you think the current problem is, corrupt sons taking over. Exactly. And then Samuel just stares blankly in disbelief. Like, uh, one commentator says that this proposal is stunning in its stupidity. Uh, no, no minced words there. But it really is kind of nonsense what, what they're really asking. Um, at least, at least it, to ask for a king um, based on the reason that they've stated doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. The request doesn't match the complaint. So perhaps there's some other motivation for their request that they're trying to hide. That's the request. Now we have a revelation that takes place. We get to see behind uh, the, the, the front that, that, that they're kind of putting up. The elders show their cards a little bit more in verse 20. Uh, when Samuel uh, warns about kingship, which we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, um, they insist on a king to judge them and to 
go out before us and fight our battles. Uh-huh, okay. That tells us a little bit more. So apparently, there is some external threat, um, and they think they need a king like the other nations to fight back. And Samuel will confirm this underlying motive actually in chapter 12. Um, he says, um, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. So that's actually what's going on. And you know, if, if that is the case, if there is this external uh, threat, um, their, their request actually has some logic to it. Um, if you look back at the earlier threats that Israel faced, um, even back into the book of Judges, um, it, it, it typically took some time to figure out from Israel who was in charge, who was going to leave, who, who was going to muster the troops together, and that could leave them uh, vulnerable, open to attack for, for a little bit. But a king <coughs> excuse me, would mean uh, clear leadership. It could mean stronger unity, right? You have a, a single banner that everyone can, can uh, come underneath, so it unites them, and you would have an army at the ready at all times. Um, so that's what worked for the other nations. So Israel's thinking, let's just do that. So the people experienced a time of prosperity and security, right? Enough time that it, the text can say Samuel grows old and has grown sons, but are now faced with a threat and they allow fear and anxiety to consume them, forgetting the faithfulness of God to deliver them. Right? So in their moment of crisis, instead of turning towards God and crying out to him, which is exactly what they did in chapter seven. They just said like, help, that's it. Instead, they turned towards the pagans, the other nations. They complain that Samuel's sons have turned away, but in what direction are their hearts positioned? They don't really care about justice. Motivated by fear, they have uh, forgotten the powerful actions of God, and, and instead they have turned to the quickest solution that might secure their estates. Give us a king like the other nations. They are equally bent. They have equally turned aside, just like Samuel's sons. So, how is God going to respond? Even though um, Samuel sees through their pretext, um, actually, uh, verse six, it says that the thing displeased Samuel. A more literal translation would, would say, the thing was wicked in his sight. He undersees, he sees what's really going on. There is something corrupt going on here. Um, <clears throat> even though he sees that pretext, he takes their request to God. Um, and God's response, I think, is a little complicated. It's a little confusing. Because if Samuel sees their hearts, surely God does. But look at what he, at what he says in verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. He says, obey the people. His command to obey the people is actually repeated three times throughout the chapter. God is emphatic, give the elders what they want. If they want a king, give them one. And this is kind of confusing um, because if they have rejected God, why give them the thing that they want? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And another, uh, another thing that, that, that kind of makes this a little problematic, um, we know that David is going to be a king here in a little bit, right? Like, we know that part of the story. And on the whole, he's approved by God. Human king approved by God. So it doesn't seem that for Israel, having an earthly king means you have necessarily rejected God as king. So what's, what's going on? So 
let's look at these two questions. The first, um, you know, why give Israel what they want? And the second, how exactly have they rejected God if the request to have a king is not in and of itself a rejection of God? So the first question, why would God still give them what they desire if that desire is set against him? And the answer is, because he wants to deliver them from more than their external enemies, he wants to deliver them from their bent, their turned aside hearts. Uh, <clears throat> every parent knows, hopefully, um, that you don't raise good, well-mannered children um, just by giving them whatever they want, right? Um, if your two-year-old was refusing to put clothes on this morning, we're all really glad that you put your foot down on that one and did not give them what they wanted. <laughs> um, however, we know that good parents will sometimes allow their children to reap what they sow, to get what they asked for, uh, and then bear the responsibility of the fallout. Um, not so that they can say, ha, I told you so, which is a temptation for sure, right? Um, no, but so that they can lovingly allow experience to steer their hearts away from what is bad and towards what is good. In this way, it's actually a form of discipline. God is a good father and a perfect teacher. He doesn't force or compel us into obedience. But we know from this passage and many others that God will, um, like Paul mentions in Romans 1, give people up to their desires, even if those desires produce personal and social destruction. Because it's in that state of brokenness and despair of your own doing that you just might learn that God is all you need and all you have ever needed. And then he can begin to form something new and fresh and beautiful from that chaos. He's pretty good at doing that. So why does God give them what they ask for? Um, because even, even though they're rejecting him, um, he has bigger plans. and He plans to change their hearts and win them back. But then there's a second question. How is their request, re request actually a rejection of God? Um, <clears throat> well, you might say, um, God had intended that he should himself be their king. They're asking uh, for a, a king. That's the issue. Case closed. Um, and God certainly is king. The Bible presents God as king. In fact, um, you, could, you, could, you could say, and it, it would not be too far to say at all, <clears throat> that the whole Bible is actually about revealing the fact that God is king and is establishing a kingdom. Um, wait, I thought the Bible was about Jesus. Exactly. Um, I'll come back to that. <clears throat> Creation actually begins with kingly language. Um, in the ancient Near East, uh, kings would set an image of themselves in their throughout their territory to mark their dominion. And God does the same thing. I mean, his images breathe and move and are called humans, but this is what he's, he's doing. He's marking his territory as king. Clearly, God is king of all creation. But we know that his kingdom, right next, it, it becomes polluted, corrupted, distorted uh, by sin, with humans attempting attempting to establish their own kingdoms in competition with his. You can just see Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel, and I, I wish I had time to like show the, the comparison between these two. I don't, I don't have that, just go read it. Um, so, because of this, God decides to restore his kingdom, his, his kingdom of creation, by planting a small kingdom within it and, and allowing it to then grow and permeate the whole. He chooses Abraham, calls him into fellowship with him himself and promises to bless him and make him into a great nation or a kingdom so that through him the nations can be blessed. 
He expands this covenant, this relationship with all of Israel, um, setting them apart as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that will share his presence with all the other nations. And in this renewing kingdom, God, again, is without a doubt 100% king. So it seems that I'm just proving the point that human kingship is necessarily at odds with God's kingship, (coughs) except uh, there's a little snag. Uh, God told Abraham, actually, in Genesis 17.6, that kings would come from his line. And then there's a prophecy in Genesis 49.10 that someone from the line of Judah, which is uh, Abraham's great-grandson, would rule as king. And then there's the little bit in Deuteronomy 17 where God permits Israel to have a human king. So asking for an earthly king was not, um, in and of itself, a rejection of God or God's kingship. But for some reason, their request is. And we're meant to feel the tension here. Um, we're actually going to see in the next few chapters in 1 Samuel, um, some chapters portray the developing monarchy positively and some kind of negatively. And that's because the request of the elders itself is not problematic. What is problematic is their heart behind the request. We've already seen that they aren't asking from a place of trust or uh, for a desire for justice. That's not why they're asking. They're asking from a place of fear, anxiety, and forgetfulness. They've been living in prosperity and peace. A threat arrives. And rather than remaining steadfast and calm and trust that God, who has always made a way, will make a way once more, instead they panic. They panic and rather rather than, than patiently waiting and listening to the word of the Lord, they want an immediate pragmatic solution, not, not from God or based on his promises. No, no, they want a solution. They want, so they, they want to fight their battles by the same means, on the same terms, and with the same power as their enemies. They want to fight by the same means, on the same terms, and with the same power as their enemies. What they are actually doing is giving up on their covenant with God. They're forsaking the relationship with him and their God-given vocation to go out and bless the nations. In fact, the nations should have seen their worship and then the peace and the, just, and the justice that went uh, along with the reign of God and said, we want what they have. Instead, that's exactly what Israel says about them. No, 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 we want what they have. God will give them what they want, even if it is against his wise plans, but he is a good and just God. So he tells Samuel to warn the people, solemnly warn them, lay it out in the most explicit terms. You claim to desire justice? <clears throat> this is the, the, the justice or the judgment of the kings that, that, that you want. Actually, in, in verse nine where it says the ways of the king, that's actually the justice. Okay, you want justice? Here's the, the justice you're going to get. So Samuel gathers the elders together and proclaims this warning to them, starting in verse 11. And for, for the sake of time, um, I'm just going to read, read part of it. Um, in verse 11, these will be the ways of the king, this will be the way of the king who will reign over you. He will take, he will appoint for himself. He will take, he will take, he will take. I'm in verse 16 now. He will take, he will take, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. 
He will take, he will take, he will take. This is a solemn warning. Um, Historical evidence actually reveals that these truly were the ways of the Canaanite kings at that time. Um, This is what they did. Samuel was not just fear-mongering here. Um, Kings could and would take children, produce, servants, animals, land, and more. Everything that Samuel mentions here, we have evidence that kings actually did that. And the elders are asking for that kind of king? It's, it's the immediacy. It's the moment. They just want a, a solution. They want someone to fight their, their battles. The elders, they ask for a certain kind of king um, who is not God or, f- or from God, and they thought that this kind of king would give protection, security, fruitfulness, justice, peace. No. The king that they are going to get is going to take. Earthly kings, even, even though they may at times rule in accordance with God's kingdom, on the whole, cannot enact God's kingdom or deliver his promise of blessing. Instead, puffed up by their own glory, they seek to acquire more and more. The elders thought by coming and requesting this king, they were going to get freedom, and God warns them, you're going to get slavery. We actually see, again here, echoes of the Exodus, right? We've seen that kind of throughout 1 Samuel. God's reminding them, no, 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 if you go this route, you're going to get what you had in Egypt before I redeem you. You're going to have slavery. You're going to be in bondage. And then actually the starkest warning of all comes after that. The Lord will not answer you in that day. Still the elders persist. God relents to their request. The people will get exactly what they ask for. And for centuries... They're going to be ruled by mostly overbearing kings who are going to do exactly what Samuel warned them they would do. And then they'll be taken into captivity by foreign enemies. So um, they, won't, um, they won't have kings like the other nations. They will have kings from the other nations ruling them. And then God will not speak. He'll go silent for 400 years. That's how the story plays out. Well, Thank goodness we're Americans and don't believe in monarchy, so we don't have to worry about making the same mistakes as Israel, right? <laughs> I mean, the Brits, they might have something to worry about. They still have the whole king thing. Um, but we can just ignore this passage and move on, right? We can just say, man, those Israelites were so dumb. And then just go to chapter 9, right? Break. Next week. Let's go. Um, no. Obviously, we can't do that. Um, this warning, which is the focal point of, of the whole chapter, right? It takes up the biggest chunk. This is the, this is, this is the focus. Um, it matters to us in every way, in every way. Church, we have experienced a time of immense prosperity and security. You know that we actually have the most religious freedom that we've ever had? It might not feel like that way, but I, I read an article recently that noted that religious freedom is enjoying a decade-long winning streak at the Supreme Court. That's incredible. That's awesome. And then not only that, the church has, has been a strong and essential cultural force in American life since before we were actually a, cu- a country. Again, that's awesome. But what's happened? We feel threatened. And for good reason too, right? Don't get me wrong. We, uh, we might have governmental protections, uh, but Christianity, but Christ- Christian teaching in, in many ways flows against the, the, the cultural currents, Right? Many of us feel these growing hostilities um, in the workplace, in the marketplace. And so what do we do? We want to crown a king. Someone who can unite us 
um, uh, uh, charge into battle against the forces of secularism with a clear strategy and rout the enemy. Someone we can see and hear immediately. You know, don't wait on the culture to demolish us. Uh, the church is going is, is, is to crumble in a humiliating defeat. Right? We, we become panicky, driven by fear and anxiety. We look at culture and, and, and say, well, they seem to be winning. Um, so what are they doing that's working? We better, we better do that because that's what works. So we engage in the fight by the same means, the same terms, with the same power, right? We follow Israel's pow- pattern. We forget that you know, Paul tells us we don't fight against flesh and blood, but that's what we want. So what does this look like for us? How do we, how do we end up doing this? Well, it generally looks like swearing allegiance to a person or an entity. And you know, so sometimes it's an individual, sometimes we swear allegiance to a, a group or a movement. And typically this swearing of allegiance is not some like official thing, it just kinda happens. Um, we swear allegiance to a person or entity that appears to be powerful and influential. It seems that they can fight uh, our, our battles and, and problems for us. And let's be frank, in particular, the church has been very attracted to political power. I could say the same thing in a conservative evangelical church as I could a progressive mainline church. It's true in both instances. Political power is very attractive. I'm just getting as political as the text is, okay? Don't worry. (laughs) Too many in the church have sworn loyalty to a particular party or leader, thinking that that party or leader is gonna sweep in maybe in some kind of revolutionary act and they're gonna uh, do justice, bring prosperity and security and provide freedom but what do we actually get? We get political entities growing in corruption and power. Um, get people growing compassionless, judgmental and self-righteous, divisive and sometimes violent. We wanted what the power could give, but it just took. It took our compassion, it took our care, it took our harmony Isaiah warns us this, uh, about this in, in um, chapter 31. It says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Right? Horses, chariots, human power. It's attractive, and, and that's what we, we want to fight the battle for us, and we don't consult the Lord. And you might protest, no, no, I, I consulted the Lord. Yeah, in the same way the elders did. You took your solution, your king, the thing that seemed immediately powerful, uh, and, and essentially just asked him to baptize it. Do you really want him to give you what you desire? Um, you know, we, we make kings not just of political leaders and movements. Um, actually, on a more individu- individual level, um, our peace can feel threatened in any number of ways. We can have fear and anxiety set in for so, many, for so many reasons. And we regularly turn to economic kings, uh, cultural kings, health and wellness kings, um, anything. Um, you sometimes get to this point where you are so desperate and you're so vulnerable that you just say, Someone just tell me what to do. Someone just do it. And there are so many things, so many people, so many groups that are like, I'll tell you, just, just submit and I'll give you exactly what you want. They 
all make promises. They all will hold you captive. We even make church kings. Um, you can tie your identity so closely to a certain teacher or preacher that they essentially become your spokesperson to and from God. And so what they say, you'll act absolutely do, no reference to scripture, no listening to the Holy Spirit. Um, that doesn't just happen in cults, if you were wondering. It's actually happening right now. Hopefully not like here right now, but in this moment around the country, there are, there are people gathered in churches who are swearing allegiance to some charismatic pastor. And we've read too many headlines about the ways that these leaders, who are never supposed to bear that much, much devotion, took from their people. Um, some of you in this room have experienced that taking, that spiritual abuse and I hate that for you. I hate it. This is the point. Human power can never secure eternal peace and will in the end bring only bondage. That's the point. I thought about having some other subpoints throughout this, but that's it. Human power can never secure eternal peace and that's what we think it'll do, right? We think it's gonna give. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna submit to this king. We're gonna, um, you know, this thing is gonna work to, 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 make a, to, to help us get through whatever. We think it, it'll give us peace. It just traps us and it takes and it takes and it doesn't give. That's the main point, but there's another more main of, Mainest? Is it the mainest point? It's the more main point? A bigger point that we want to talk about here. God doesn't just give us what we want. He gives us what we need. And the king that we need has come. God doesn't just give us what we want. He gives us what we need. Israel gets the king that they wanted. Right? We're going to read this, the rest of the story. We're going to go through this. They get Saul. But then God supplants him with the king they need, David the king who is after God's own heart and more closely reflects the reign of God. Because that's how God right, has planned to restore his whole kingdom, right? All of creation, he's gonna start with this small kingdom and he is going to send someone on his behalf behind enemy lines, so to speak, to lead his children home. But even David fails. And his son Solomon, even more so, Solomon's gonna do just some of the same things that Samuel has warned us about. But the prophets throughout the life of Israel don't forget the reign of David, the man after God's heart. And they tell of one, they, 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 they prophesy about one who will come from David's line and his heart will be even in a closer alignment with God because he is God. Mark chapter one. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus shows up and says, God in me has come to claim the throne. It's time. The kingdom is at hand. 
Jesus is the king that we need. He is the one promised to Abraham and to Judah and to David who would establish the reign of God once more and lead a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's, that's us. He's calling people from every nationality, every ethnicity, and every social and economic status into shalom, into peace and justice, into the life and love of the eternal God. And he is the only king who does not take. In fact, he gives everything. Again, in Mark uh, chapter 10, he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's just what he did, right? He, first he, he healed the chronically ill and demon possessed. He fed the hungry and washed feet. He encouraged the downcast and comforted the mourning, but he didn't stop there. He gave his life for you, exchanging yours for his own. And in so doing, won the battle that actually is the most important battle of all against sin and death that all of us on our own will lose. And he won it for us by giving us his very Self, his life. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by, and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So God had always intended that he was going to come among us to lead us out of this, to be the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The writer continues, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what we see again and again is that people submit to these different kings in their lives that just take and they're just enslaved, they're in bondage. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to rescue us from. And then what's even crazier is that he actually allows us to reign with him. All right, if you were paying attention when we were doing our call to worship this morning, it's, it's, it's this, this prayer from Revelation 5 where all the saints are gathered to worship Jesus, the, the, the slain and risen lamb as king. And then the last line is, and they shall reign with him. What king does that? What king on, here, on, on earth here is gonna share their power with you? None. It's so crazy that Jesus gives us his life and is like, yeah, come rule with me. Come reign with me. That's crazy. He gives us everything and he took nothing. Actually, that's not entirely true. Um, at least he takes nothing like the kings we want. But Jesus does take some things because every king has his costs. But what does Jesus take? He takes the anxiety you feel about whether or not you're a good parent or whether or not you're a good son or daughter. He takes the worry you experience about finding a house and making a living. He takes the shame that shadows over your soul because of what was done to you years ago. He takes the lie that no one could ever love you and that you're worthless. He takes the guilt you feel because you messed up again. He takes your pride, callousness, self-righteousness, contempt, hatred, lust, injustice. He takes all your sins 
and nails them to the cross where he gave his life. That's what he takes. That's the cost. Seems like that's a better option. That he would take my sin, my shame, my guilt, my fears, that he would speak truth to the lies that, I, that I'm told again and again. Yeah, that's the kind of king I want. Is that the kind of king you want? It can be so tempting in our moments of desperation to just look for the pragmatic approach, right? Say a quick prayer and then, okay, okay, what's actually gonna fight this battle for me right now? Don't, don't. You're gonna give yourself away and you'll find yourself enslaved. You're gonna find yourself in bondage. So as Paul encouraged, encouraged us in Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't do it. Don't submit again to slavery. There is a greater hope, a surer peace that comes in Jesus. Submit to him, and you're not gonna find that he just takes, takes, but he gives. He gives you life. He gives you the love that has existed between him and the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity. You get to share in that, and you get to rule with him. That's crazy. That's awesome. And that's what he's inviting us into. Um, it's fitting now that we get to come and take communion. So ushers and hosts, if you want to go ahead and, and pre uh, prepare for that. Um, it's fitting because um, we, we get to be reminded exactly what Jesus gave for us. His life, his body, his blood. So as, as you come here in just a moment um, to, to take these elements and then come back to your seats, um, take this moment use this moment. I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, um, what kings do I ask to fight my battles when I become fearful or anxious? Ask yourself that. How have those kings taken? What have they demanded of me? How have they enslaved me? Let the Spirit speak to you in this moment and then give it to Jesus and receive His grace. Let me pray for us and then we'll come and get the elements and take back to our seats. God, you are so good. Even though you will give us what we want, still your greater focus is to give us what we need and what we need is you. We so easy look to things here that we think can fix our problems, um, we, we look for um, human power. Um, we think these things can, can, can fight our battles, and, and they can't. Only you can. You have actually fought the battle that matters the most, the, 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 the fight that we have against sin and death, which, we, which will defeat us if we don't have you. So use this moment to speak your grace over us. Use this moment to remind us that you have given us yourself and there's nothing else that we need. Amen. You can come and, and um, receive the elements.